Chapter 1, Part A of The Wealth of Nations, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Book 5. Of the Revenue of the Sovereign or Commonwealth. Chapter 1, Part A. Of the Expenses of the Sovereign or Commonwealth. Part 1. Of the Expense of Defense. The first duty of the sovereign, that of protecting the society from the violence and invasion of other independent societies, can be performed only by means of a military force. But the expense both of preparing this military force in time of peace, and of employing it in time of war, is very different in the different states of society, in the different periods of improvement. Among nations of hunters, the lowest and rudest state of society, such as we find it among the native tribes of North America, every man is a warrior, as well as a hunter. When he goes to war, either to defend his society or to revenge the injuries which have been done to it by other societies, he maintains himself by his own labor, in the same manner as when he lives at home. His society, for in this state of things there is properly neither sovereign nor commonwealth, is at no sort of expense, either to prepare him for the field or to maintain him while he is in it. Among nations of shepherds, a more advanced state of society, such as we find it among the Tartars and Arabs, every man is, in the same manner, a warrior. Such nations have commonly no fixed habitation, but live either in tents or in a sort of covered wagons, which are easily transported from place to place. The whole tribe or nation changes its situation according to the different seasons of the year, as well as according to other accidents. When its herds and flocks have consumed the forage of one part of the country, it removes to another, and from that to a third. In the dry season, it comes down to the banks of the rivers. In the wet season, it retires to the upper country. When such a nation goes to war, the warriors will not trust their herds and flocks to the feeble defense of their old men, their women and children, and their old men, their women and children, will not be left behind without defense, and without subsistence. The whole nation, besides being accustomed to a wandering life, even in time of peace, easily takes the field in time of war. Whether it marches as an army, or moves about as a company of herdsmen, the way of life is nearly the same, though the object proposed by it be very different. They all go to war together, therefore, and every one does as well as he can. Among the Tartars, even the women have been frequently known to engage in battle. If they conquer, whatever belongs to the hostile tribe is the recompense of the victory. But if they are vanquished, all is lost, and not only their herds and flocks, but their women and children become the booty of the conqueror. Even the greater part of those who survive the action are obliged to submit to him for the sake of immediate subsistence. The rest are commonly dissipated and dispersed in the desert. The ordinary life, the ordinary exercise, of a Tartar or Arab prepares him sufficiently for war. Running, wrestling, cudgel-playing, throwing the javelin, drawing the bow, etc., are the common pastimes of those who live in the open air, and are all of them the images of war. When a Tartar or Arab actually goes to war, he is maintained by his own herds and flocks, which he carries with him in the same manner as in peace. His chief, or sovereign, for those nations have all chiefs or sovereigns, is at no sort of expense in preparing him for the field, and when he is in it, 
the chance of plunder is the only pay which he either expects or requires. An army of hunters can seldom exceed two or three hundred men. The precarious subsistence which the chase affords could seldom allow a greater number to keep together for any considerable time. An army of shepherds, on the contrary, may sometimes amount to two or three hundred thousand. As long as nothing stops their progress, as long as they can go on from one district, of which they have consumed the forage, to another, which is yet entire, there seems to be scarce any limit to the number who can march on together. A nation of hunters can never be formidable to the civilized nations in their neighborhood. A nation of shepherds may. Nothing can be more contemptible than an Indian war in North America. Nothing, on the contrary, can be more dreadful than a Tartar invasion has frequently been in Asia. The judgment of Thucydides, that both Europe and Asia could not resist the Scythians united, has been verified by the experience of all ages. The inhabitants of the extensive but defenseless plains of Scythia or Tartary have been frequently united under the dominion of the chief of some conquering horde or clan, and the havoc and devastation of Asia have always signalized their union. The inhabitants of the inhospitable deserts of Arabia, the other great nation of shepherds, have never been united but once, under Mohammed and his immediate successors. Their union, which was more the effect of religious enthusiasm than of conquest, was signalized in the same manner. If the hunting nations of America should ever become shepherds, their neighborhood would be much more dangerous to the European colonies than it is at present. In a yet more advanced state of society, among those nations of husbandmen who have little foreign commerce, and no other manufactures but those coarse and household ones, which almost every private family prepares for its own use, every man, in the same manner, either is a warrior or easily becomes such. Those who live by agriculture generally pass the whole day in the open air, exposed to all the inclemencies of the seasons. The hardiness of their ordinary life prepares them for the fatigues of war, to some of which their necessary occupations bear a great analogy. The necessary occupation of a ditcher prepares him to work in the trenches, and to fortify a camp, as well as to enclose a field. The ordinary pastimes of such husbandmen are the same as those of shepherds, and are in the same manner the images of war. But as husbandmen have less leisure than shepherds, they are not so frequently employed in those pastimes. They are soldiers, but soldiers not quite so much masters of their exercise. Such as they are, however, it seldom costs the sovereign or commonwealth any expense to prepare them for the field. Agriculture, even in its rudest and lowest state, supposes a settlement, some sort of fixed habitation, which cannot be abandoned without great loss. When a nation of mere husbandmen therefore goes to war, the whole people cannot take the field together. The old men, the women and children at least, must remain at home, to take care of the habitation. All the men of the military age, however, may take the field, and in small nations of this kind have frequently done so. In every nation, the men of the military age are supposed to amount to about a fourth or a fifth part of the whole body of the people. If the campaign, too, should begin after seed-time and end before harvest, both the husbandman and his principal laborers can be spared from the farm without much loss. He trusts that the work which must be done in the meantime can be well enough executed by the old men, the women, and the children. He is not unwilling, therefore, to serve without pay during a short campaign, and it frequently costs the sovereign or commonwealth as little to maintain him in the field as to prepare him for it. 
the citizens of all the different states of ancient greece seem to have served in this manner till after the second persian war and the people of peloponnesus till after the peloponnesian war the peloponnesians thucydides observes generally left the field in the summer and returned home to reap the harvest the roman people under their kings and during the first ages of the republic served in the same manner it was not till the siege of vii that they who stayed at home began to contribute something towards maintaining those who went to war in the european monarchies which were founded upon the ruins of the roman empire both before and for some time after the establishment of what is properly called the feudal law the great lords with all their immediate dependents used to serve the crown at their own expense in the field in the same manner as at home they maintained themselves by their own revenue and not by any stipend or pay which they received from the king upon that particular occasion in a more advanced state of society two different causes contribute to render it altogether impossible that they who take the field should maintain themselves at their own expense those two causes are the progress of manufactures and the improvement in the art of war though a husbandman should be employed in an expedition provided it begins after seed-time and ends before harvest the interruption of his business will not always occasion any considerable diminution of his revenue without the intervention of his labor nature does herself the greater part of the work which remains to be done but the moment that an artificer a smith a carpenter or a weaver for example quits his workhouse the sole source of his revenue is completely dried up nature does nothing for him he does all for himself when he takes the field therefore in defence of the public as he has no revenue to maintain himself he must necessarily be maintained by the public but in a country of which a great part of the inhabitants are artificers and manufacturers a great part of the people who go to war must be drawn from those classes and must therefore be maintained by the public as long as they are employed in its service when the art of war too has gradually grown up to be a very intricate and complicated science when the event of war ceases to be determined as in the first ages of society by a single irregular skirmish or battle but when the contest is generally spun out through several different campaigns each of which lasts during the greater part of the year it becomes universally necessary that the public should maintain those who serve the public in war at least while they are employed in that service whatever in time of peace might be the ordinary occupation of those who go to war so very tedious and expensive a service would otherwise be by far too heavy a burden upon them after the second persian war accordingly the armies of athens seem to have been generally composed of mercenary troops consisting indeed partly of citizens but partly too of foreigners and all of them equally hired and paid at the expense of the state from the time of the siege of vii the armies of rome received pay for their service during the time which they remained in the field under the feudal governments the military service both of the great lords and of their immediate dependents was after a certain period universally exchanged for a payment in money which was employed to maintain those who served in their stead the number of those who can go to war in proportion to the whole number of the people is necessarily much smaller in a civilized than in a rude state of society in a civilized society as the soldiers are maintained altogether by the labor of those who are not soldiers the number of the former can never exceed what the latter can maintain over and above maintaining in a manner suitable to their respective stations both themselves and the other officers of government and law whom they are obliged to maintain 
in the little agrarian states of ancient Greece, a fourth or a fifth part of the whole body of the people considered themselves as soldiers, and would sometimes, it is said, take the field. Among the civilized nations of modern Europe, it is commonly computed that not more than one hundredth part of the inhabitants of any country can be employed as soldiers, without ruin to the country which pays the expense of their service. The expense of preparing the army for the field seems not to have become considerable in any nation, till long after that of maintaining it in the field had devolved entirely upon the sovereign or commonwealth. In all the different republics of ancient Greece, to learn his military exercises was a necessary part of education imposed by the state upon every free citizen. In every city there seems to have been a public field, in which, under the protection of the public magistrate, the young people were taught their different exercises by different masters. In this very simple institution consisted the whole expense which any Grecian state seems ever to have been at, in preparing its citizens for war. In ancient Rome, the exercises of the Campus Martius answered the same purpose with those of the gymnasium in ancient Greece. Under the feudal governments, the many public ordinances, that the citizens of every district should practice archery, as well as several other military exercises, were intended for promoting the same purpose, but do not seem to have promoted it so well. Either from want of interest in the officers entrusted with the execution of those ordinances, or from some other cause, they appear to have been universally neglected, and in the progress of all those governments, military exercises seem to have gone gradually into disuse among the great body of the people. In the republics of ancient Greece and Rome, during the whole period of their existence and under the feudal governments, for a considerable time after their first establishment, the trade of a soldier was not a separate, distinct trade, which constituted the sole or principal occupation of a particular class of citizens. Every subject of the state, whatever might be the ordinary trade or occupation by which he gained his livelihood, considered himself, upon all ordinary occasions, as fit likewise to exercise the trade of a soldier and, upon many extraordinary occasions, as bound to exercise it. The art of war, however, as it is certainly the noblest of all arts, so in the progress of improvement it necessarily becomes one of the most complicated among them. The state of the mechanical, as well as some other arts, with which it is necessarily connected, determines the degree of perfection to which it is capable of being carried at any particular time. But in order to carry it to this degree of perfection, it is necessary that it should become the sole or principal occupation of a particular class of citizens. And the division of labor is as necessary for the improvement of this as of every other art. Into other arts, the division of labor is naturally introduced by the prudence of individuals, who find that they promote their private interest better by confining themselves to a particular trade than by exercising a great number but it is the wisdom of the state only which can render the trade of a soldier a particular trade separate and distinct from all others a private citizen who in time of profound peace and without any particular encouragement from the public should spend the greater part of his time in military exercises might no doubt both improve himself very much in them and amuse himself very well but he certainly would not promote his own interest it is the wisdom of the state only which can render it for his interest to give up the greater part of his time to this peculiar occupation and states have not always had this wisdom even when their circumstances had become such that the preservation of their existence required that they should have it a shepherd has a great deal of leisure a husbandman in the rude state of husbandry has some 
an artificer or manufacturer has none at all the first may without any loss employ a great deal of his time in martial exercises the second may employ some part of it but the last cannot employ a single hour in them without some loss and his attention to his own interest naturally leads him to neglect them altogether those improvements in husbandry too which the progress of arts and manufactures necessarily introduces leave the husbandman as little leisure as the artificer military exercises come to be as much neglected by the inhabitants of the country as by those of the town and the great body of the people becomes altogether unwarlike that wealth at the same time which always follows the improvements of agriculture and manufactures and which in reality is no more than the accumulated produce of those improvements provokes the invasion of all their neighbors an industrious and upon that account a wealthy nation is of all nations the most likely to be attacked and unless the state takes some new measure for the public defence the natural habits of the people render them altogether incapable of defending themselves in these circumstances there seem to be but two methods by which the state can make any tolerable provision for the public defence it may either first by means of a very rigorous police and in spite of the whole bent of the interest genius and inclinations of the people enforce the practice of military exercises and oblige either all the citizens of the military age or a certain number of them to join in some measures the trade of a soldier to whatever other trade or profession they may happen to carry on or secondly by maintaining and employing a certain number of citizens in the constant practice of military exercises it may render the trade of a soldier a particular trade separate and distinct from all others if the state has recourse to the first of those two expedients its military force is said to consist in a militia if to the second it is said to consist in a standing army the practice of military exercises is the sole or principal occupation of the soldiers of a standing army and the maintenance or pay which the state affords them is the principal and ordinary fund of their subsistence the practice of military exercises is only the occasional occupation of the soldiers of a militia and they derive the principal and ordinary fund of their subsistence from some other occupation in a militia the character of the laborer artificer or tradesman predominates over that of the soldier in a standing army that of the soldier predominates over every other character and in this distinction seems to consist the essential difference between these two species of military force militias have been of several different kinds in some countries the citizens destined for defending the state seem to have been exercised only without being if i may say so regimented that is without being divided into separate and distinct bodies of troops each of which performed its exercises under its own proper and permanent officers in the republics of ancient greece and rome each citizen as long as he remained at home seems to have practised his exercises either separately and independently or with such of his equals as he liked best and not to have been attached to any particular body of troops till he was actually called upon to take the field in other countries the militia has not only been exercised but regimented in england in switzerland and i believe in every other country of modern europe where any imperfect military force of this kind has been established every militiaman is even in time of peace attached to a particular body of troops which performs its exercises under its own proper and permanent officers 
Before the invention of firearms, that army was superior in which the soldiers had, each individually, the greatest skill and dexterity in the use of their arms. Strength and agility of body were of the highest consequence, and commonly determined the fate of battles. But this skill and dexterity in the use of their arms could be acquired only, in the same manner as fencing is at present, by practicing, not in great bodies, but each man separately, in a particular school, under a particular master, or with his own particular equals and companions. Since the invention of firearms, strength and agility of body, or even extraordinary dexterity and skill in the use of arms, though they are far from being of no consequence, are, however, of less consequence. The nature of the weapon, though it by no means puts the awkward upon a level with the skillful, puts him more nearly so than he ever was before. All the dexterity and skill, it is supposed, which are necessary for using it, can be well enough acquired by practicing in great bodies. Regularity, order, and prompt obedience to command are qualities which, in modern armies, are of more importance towards determining the fate of battles than the dexterity and skill of the soldiers in the use of their arms. But the noise of firearms, the smoke, and the invisible death to which every man feels himself every moment exposed, as soon as he comes within cannon shot, and frequently a long time before the battle can be well said to be engaged, must render it very difficult to maintain any considerable degree of this regularity, order, and prompt obedience, even in the beginning of a modern battle. In an ancient battle there was no noise but what arose from the human voice. There was no smoke, there was no invisible cause of wounds or death. Every man, till some mortal weapon actually did approach him, saw clearly that no such weapon was near him. In these circumstances, and among troops who had some confidence in their own skill and dexterity and the use of their arms, it must have been a good deal less difficult to preserve some degree of regularity and order, not only in the beginning, but through the whole progress of an ancient battle, until one of the two armies was fairly defeated. But the habits of regularity, order, and prompt obedience to command can be acquired only by troops which are exercised in great bodies. A militia, however, in whatever manner it may be either disciplined or exercised, must always be much inferior to a well-disciplined and well-exercised standing army. The soldiers who are exercised only once a week, or once a month, can never be so expert in the use of their arms as those who are exercised every day, or every other day. And though this circumstance may not be of so much consequence in modern as it was in ancient times, yet the acknowledged superiority of the prussian troops owing it is said very much to their superior expertness in their exercise may satisfy us that it is even at this day of very considerable consequence the soldiers who are bound to obey their officer only once a week or once a month and who are at all other times at liberty to manage their own affairs their own way without being in any respect accountable to him can never be under the same awe in his presence can never have the same disposition to ready obedience with those whose whole life and conduct are every day directed by him and who every day even rise and go to bed or at least retire to their quarters according to his orders in what is called discipline or in the habit of ready obedience a militia must always be still more inferior to a standing army than it may sometimes be in what is called the manual exercise or in the management and use of its arms but in modern war 
the habit of ready and instant obedience is of much greater consequence than a considerable superiority in the management of arms. Those militias which, like the Tartar or Arab militia, go to war under the same chieftains whom they are accustomed to obey in peace, are by far the best. In respect for their officers, in the habit of ready obedience, they approach nearest to standing armies. The Highland militia, when it served under its own chieftains, had some advantage of the same kind. As the Highlanders, however, were not wandering, but stationary shepherds, as they had all a fixed habitation, and were not in peaceable times accustomed to follow their chieftain from place to place, so in time of war they were less willing to follow him to any considerable distance, or to continue for any long time in the field. When they had acquired any booty, they were eager to return home, and his authority was seldom sufficient to detain them. In point of obedience, they were always much inferior to what is reported of the Tartars and Arabs. As the Highlanders, too, from their stationary life, spend less of their time in the open air, they were always less accustomed to military exercises, and were less expert in the use of their arms than the Tartars and Arabs are said to be. A militia of any kind, it must be observed, however, which has served for several successive campaigns in the field, becomes in every respect a standing army. The soldiers are every day exercised in the use of their arms, and, being constantly under the command of their officers, are habituated to the same prompt obedience which takes place in standing armies. What they were before they took the field is of little importance. They necessarily become, in every respect, a standing army, after they have passed a few campaigns in it. Should the war in America drag out through another campaign, the American militia may become, in every respect, a match for that standing army, of which the valor appeared, in the last war at least, not inferior to that of the hardiest veterans of France and Spain. This distinction being well understood, the history of all ages, it will be found, hears testimony to the irresistible superiority which a well-regulated standing army has over a militia. One of the first standing armies, of which we have any distinct account in any well-authenticated history, is that of Philip of Macedon. His frequent wars with the Thracians, Illyrians, Thessalians, and some of the Greek cities in the neighborhood of Macedon, gradually formed his troops, which in the beginning were probably militia, to the exact discipline of a standing army. When he was at peace, which he was very seldom, and never for any long time together, he was careful not to disband that army. It vanquished and subdued, after a long and violent struggle, indeed, the gallant and well-exercised militias of the principal republics of ancient Greece, and afterwards, with a very little struggle, the effeminate and ill-exercised militia of the great Persian Empire. The fall of the Greek republics and of the Persian Empire was the effect of the irresistible superiority which a standing army has over every other sort of militia. It is the first great revolution in the affairs of mankind of which history has preserved any distinct and circumstantial account. The fall of Carthage, and the consequent elevation of Rome, is the second. All the varieties in the fortune of those two famous republics may very well be accounted for from the same cause. From the end of the first to the beginning of the second Carthaginian war, the armies of Carthage were continually in the field, and employed under three great generals, who succeeded one another in the command, Amokar, his son-in-law, Asdrubal, and his son, Annibal. First, in chastising their own rebellious slaves, afterwards in subduing the revolted nations of Africa, 
and lastly in conquering the great kingdom of spain the army which Annibal led from Spain into Italy must necessarily, in those different wars, have been gradually formed to the exact discipline of a standing army. The Romans, in the meantime, though they had not been altogether at peace, yet they had not, during this period, been engaged in any war of great consequence. And their military discipline, it is generally said, was a good deal relaxed. The Roman armies which Annibal encountered at Trebi, Thrasymenus, and cana were militia opposed to a standing army this circumstance it is probable contributed more than any other to determine the fate of those battles the standing army which annibal left behind him in spain had the like superiority over the militia which the romans sent to oppose it and in a few years under the command of his brother the younger asdrubal expelled them almost entirely from that country annibal was ill supplied from home the Roman militia, being continually in the field, became, in the progress of the war, a well-disciplined and well-exercised standing army, and the superiority of Annibal grew every day less and less. Asdrubal judged it necessary to lead the whole, or almost the whole, of the standing army which he commanded in Spain, to the assistance of his brother in Italy. In this march he is said to have been misled by his guides and in a country which he did not know was surprised and attacked by another standing army in every respect equal or superior to his own and was entirely defeated when asdrubal had left spain the great scipio found nothing to oppose him but a militia inferior to his own he conquered and subdued that militia and in the course of the war his own militia necessarily became a well-disciplined and well-exercised standing army that standing army was afterwards carried to Africa, where it found nothing but a militia to oppose it. In order to defend Carthage, it became necessary to recall the standing army of Annibal. The disheartened and frequently defeated African militia joined it, and at the Battle of Zama, composed the greater part of the troops of Annibal. The event of that day determined the fate of the two rival republics. From the end of the Second Carthaginian War till the fall of the Roman Republic, the armies of Rome were, in every respect, standing armies. The standing army of Macedon made some resistance to their arms. In the height of their grandeur it cost them two great wars and three great battles to subdue that little kingdom, of which the conquest would probably have been still more difficult had it not been for the cowardice of its last king. The militias of all the civilized nations of the ancient world, of Greece, of Syria, and of Egypt, made but a feeble resistance to the standing armies of Rome. The militias of some barbarous nations defended themselves much better. The Scythian, or Tartar militia, which Mithridates drew from the countries north of the Euxine and Caspian Seas, were the most formidable enemies whom the Romans had to encounter after the Second Carthaginian War. The Parthian and German militias, too, were always respectable, and upon several occasions gained very considerable advantages over the Roman armies. In general, however, and when the Roman armies were well commanded, they appear to have been very much superior, and if the Romans did not pursue the final conquest either of Parthia or Germany, it was probably because they judged that it was not worth while to add those two barbarous countries to an empire which was already too large. The ancient Parthians appear to have been a nation of Scythian or Tartar extraction, and to have always retained a good deal of the manners of their ancestors. 
The ancient Germans were, like the Scythians or Tartars, a nation of wandering shepherds, who went to war under the same chiefs whom they were accustomed to follow in peace. Their militia was exactly of the same kind with that of the Scythians or Tartars, from whom, too, they were probably descended. Many different causes contributed to relax the discipline of the Roman armies. Its extreme severity was, perhaps, one of those causes. In the days of their grandeur, when no enemy appeared capable of opposing them, their heavy armor was laid aside as unnecessarily burdensome, their laborious exercises were neglected as unnecessarily toilsome. Under the Roman emperors, besides, the standing armies of Rome, those particularly which guarded the German and Pannonian frontiers, became dangerous to their masters, against whom they used frequently to set up their own generals. In order to render them less formidable, according to some authors, Diocletian, according to others, Constantine, first withdrew them from the frontier, where they had always before been encamped in great bodies, generally of two or three legions each, and dispersed them in small bodies through the different provincial towns, from whence they were scarce ever removed, but when it became necessary to repel an invasion. Small bodies of soldiers, quartered in trading and manufacturing towns, and seldom removed from those quarters, became themselves tradesmen, artificers, and manufacturers. The civil came to predominate over the military character, and the standing armies of Rome gradually degenerated into a corrupt, neglected, and undisciplined militia, incapable of resisting the attack of the German and Scythian militias, which soon afterwards invaded the Western Empire. It was only by hiring the militia of some of those nations to oppose to that of others, that the emperors were for some time able to defend themselves. The fall of the Western Empire is the third great revolution in the affairs of mankind, of which ancient history has preserved any distinct or circumstantial account. It was brought about by the irresistible superiority which the militia of a barbarous has over that of a civilized nation, which the militia of a nation of shepherds has over that of a nation of husbandmen, artificers, and manufacturers. The victories which have been gained by militia have generally been, not over standing armies, but over other militias, in exercise and discipline inferior to themselves. Such were the victories which the Greek militia gained over that of the Persian Empire, and such, too, were those which, in later times, the Swiss militia gained over that of the Austrians and Burgundians. The military force of the German and Scythian nations, who established themselves upon ruins of the Western Empire, continued for some time to be of the same kind in their new settlements as it had been in their original country. It was a militia of shepherds and husbandmen, which, in time of war, took the field under the command of the same chieftains whom it was accustomed to obey in peace. It was, therefore, tolerably well exercised and tolerably well disciplined. As arts and industry advanced, however, the authority of the chieftains gradually decayed, and the great body of the people had less time to spare for military exercises. Both the discipline and the exercise of the feudal militia, therefore, went gradually to ruin, and standing armies were gradually introduced to supply the place of it. When the expedient of a standing army, besides, had once been adopted by one civilized nation, it became necessary that all its neighbors should follow the example. They soon found that their safety depended upon their doing so, and that their own militia was altogether incapable of resisting the attack of such an army. The soldiers of a standing army, though they may never have seen an enemy, yet have frequently appeared to possess all the courage of veteran troops, and, the very moment that they took the field, to have been fit to face the hardiest and most experienced veterans.' 
In 1756, when the Russian army marched into Poland, the valor of the Russian soldiers did not appear inferior to that of the Prussians, at that time supposed to be the hardiest and most experienced veterans in Europe. The Russian Empire, however, had enjoyed a profound peace for near twenty years before, and could at that time have very few soldiers who had never seen an enemy. When the Spanish War broke out in 1739, England had enjoyed a profound peace for about eight and twenty years. The valor of her soldiers, however, far from being corrupted by that long peace, was never more distinguished than in the attempt upon Carthagena, the first unfortunate exploit of that unfortunate war. In a long peace, the generals, perhaps, may sometimes forget their skill. But where a well-regulated standing army has been kept up, the soldiers seem never to forget their valor. When a civilized nation depends for its defense upon a militia, it is at all times exposed to be conquered by any barbarous nation which happens to be in its neighborhood. The frequent conquests of all the civilized countries in Asia by the Tartars sufficiently demonstrates the natural superiority which the militia of a barbarous has over that of a civilized nation. A well-regulated standing army is superior to every militia. Such an army, as it can best be maintained by an opulent and civilized nation, so it can alone defend such a nation against the invasion of a poor and barbarous neighbor. It is only by means of a standing army, therefore, that the civilization of any country can be perpetuated, or even preserved, for any considerable time. As it is only by means of a well-regulated standing army that a civilized country can be defended, so it is only by means of it that a barbarous country can be suddenly and tolerably civilized. A standing army establishes, with an irresistible force, the law of the sovereign through the remotest provinces of the empire, and maintains some degree of regular government in countries which could not otherwise admit of any. Whoever examines with attention the improvements which Peter the Great introduced into the Russian Empire will find that they almost all resolve themselves into the establishment of a well-regulated standing army. It is the instrument which executes and maintains all his other regulations. That degree of order and internal peace, which that empire has ever since enjoyed, is altogether owing to the influence of that army. Men of republican principles have been jealous of a standing army, as dangerous to liberty. It certainly is so, wherever the interest of the general, and that of the principal officers, are not necessarily connected with the support of the constitution of the state. The standing army of Caesar destroyed the Roman Republic. The standing army of Cromwell turned the long parliament out of doors. But where the sovereign is himself the general, and the principal nobility and gentry of the country, the chief officers of the army, where the military force is placed under the command of those who have the greatest interest in the support of the civil authority, because they have themselves the greatest share of that authority, a standing army can never be dangerous to liberty. On the contrary, it may, in some cases, be favorable to liberty. The security which it gives to the sovereign renders unnecessary that troublesome jealousy, which, in some modern republics, seems to watch over the minutest actions, and to be at all times ready to disturb the peace of every citizen. Where the security of the magistrate, though supported by the principal people of the country, is endangered by every popular discontent, where a small tumult is capable of bringing about in a few hours a great revolution, the whole authority of government must be employed to suppress and punish every murmur and complaint against it. 
to a sovereign on the contrary who feels himself supported not only by the natural aristocracy of the country but by a well-regulated standing army the rudest the most groundless and the most licentious remonstrances can give little disturbance he can safely pardon or neglect them and his consciousness of his own superiority naturally disposes him to do so that degree of liberty which approaches to licentiousness can be tolerated only in countries where the sovereign is secured by a well-regulated standing army it is in such countries only that the public safety does not require that the sovereign should be trusted with any discretionary power for suppressing even the impertinent wantonness of this licentious liberty the first duty of the sovereign therefore that of defending the society from the violence and injustice of other independent societies grows gradually more and more expensive as the society advances in civilization the military force of the society which originally cost the sovereign no expense either in time of peace or in time of war must in the progress of improvement first be maintained by him in time of war and afterwards even in time of peace the great change introduced into the art of war by the invention of firearms has enhanced still further both the expense of exercising and disciplining any particular number of soldiers in time of peace and that of employing them in time of war both their arms and their ammunition are become more expensive a musket is a more expensive machine than a javelin or a bow and arrows a cannon or a mortar than a ballista or a catapult the powder which is spent in modern review is lost irrecoverably and occasions a very considerable expense the javelins and arrows which were thrown or shot in an ancient one could easily be picked up again and were besides of very little value the cannon and the mortar are not only much dearer but much heavier machines than the ballista or catapult and require a greater expense not only to prepare them for the field but to carry them to it as the superiority of the modern artillery too over that of the ancients is very great it has become much more difficult and consequently much more expensive to fortify a town so as to resist even for a few weeks the attack of that superior artillery in modern times many different causes contribute to render the defence of the society more expensive the unavoidable effects of the natural progress of improvement have in this respect been a good deal enhanced by a great revolution in the art of war to which a mere accident the invention of gunpowder seems to have given occasion in modern war the great expense of firearms gives an evident advantage to the nation which can best afford that expense and consequently to an opulent and civilized over a poor and barbarous nation in ancient times the opulent and civilized found it difficult to defend themselves against the poor and barbarous nations in modern times the poor and barbarous find it difficult to defend themselves against the opulent and civilized the invention of firearms an invention which at first sight appears to be so pernicious is certainly favorable both to the permanency and to the extension of civilization end of book five chapter one part a